Hey, this is Dan Kogan. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Family in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today and let you know you matter to us because you matter to God. Enjoy the message. John MacArthur reminds us they were perfectly ordinary men, not scholars or theologians. They were not outstanding with their talents, their intellectual abilities. They were prone to mistakes, misstatements, wrong attitudes, lapses of faith, bitter failure. Jesus Jesus even mentioned they were slow learners and somewhat dense. Um, So it sounds a lot like us. They spanned the entire political spectrum. There were zealots determined to overthrow the Romans. There was a tax collector who was really a collaborator with the Romans. At least four were fishermen. Others were probably tradesmen or craftsmen. Most were from Galilee, an agricultural area with the intersection of many trade routes. As ordinary as they were, they carried out the ministry of Jesus after the resurrection. And uh, certainly Acts 17 tells us they turned the world upside down. They were personally selected by Jesus. He knew their faults before he chose them. He trained them for months, um, not years. Um, His ministry was three and a half years, but his intense training with the disciples was only about 18 months. They learned scripture and theology. They learned how to pray. They learned how to forgive. They learned how to serve. And after all of this intensive training, on the night he was betrayed... They all fled, (laughs) and that appeared to be monumental failure. They believed they had failed, and they apparently went back to fishing, and they weren't very good at it anymore, if you remember that story. But they were empowered at Pentecost, and their legacy is with us today, and they were the living proof that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. By the time Jesus identified and called the 12 from the larger group of followers, half his early ministry was over. The first half of his earthly ministry was primarily a ministry to the crowds. The first half of Jesus' earthly ministry, the first 18 months, was primarily a ministry with crowds. The second half, the second 18 months, was primarily an investment in the disciples. Now, we're going to look, the, the, the disciples, there's, there's sort of four aspects, as, as, Pipe, as uh, uh, MacArthur makes very clear to us, there's sort of four aspects to their calling. So let's look at John's gospel as one example of, the first thing is really their calling to conversion, and that's seen real clearly in, in John's gospel and uh, really chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we've got the story there of John the Baptist. And then on, in verse 35 of John chapter 1, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus passing by. Look, the Lamb of God, the two disciples heard him say and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus said, come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and it was about, about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, we found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and 
he brought Simon to see Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Caiaphas, which is translated Peter. In verse 43, and the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip said. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Verse 49, Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this, he said. Truly, I say, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. That was, their, that was the call to conversion for these particular disciples. But each of the disciples that Jesus called had a moment when they saw him, understood him, were drawn to him, and were converted in the sense of believing in his teaching and who he was. But they had not yet left their jobs. Look at Luke chapter 5. You know, that we have that calling there in John chapter 1. And then in Luke chapter 5, verse 6, when they did, this is about the fish back and forth. And when they did this, they caught a great number of fish. I'm, I won't go into all the detail. Remember, they're fishing at night and don't catch anything. And Jesus says, throw your nets down and the other side, and they did. And so they signal, verse 7, their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And the boat filled so much that they began to sink. And verse 8, now the disciples had already had their conversion. They, they'd already uh, met Jesus, knew who he was, believed in him, but they had not yet followed him in that sense. And so here, this example of, of Jesus telling them where to put their nets, and they do, and the nets are so full. Now, Peter's a fisherman by trade, and, and this is like the ultimate fish finder. I mean, this, he could get very wealthy by doing it this way. And, and you might think, especially since he knew who Jesus was, you might think he would just embrace this as a wonderful blessing and, and say, hey, can you come go fishing with us every night? But what happened was in verse 8, when Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, now listen, Go away from me, because I'm a sinful man, Lord. And for all of those who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you'll be catching people. Then they brought their boats to the land and left everything and followed him. So these disciples had a call to conversion, and then sometime later, they left everything and followed him, a call really to, to ministry. But he still has a lot of people around him, Jesus does. These aren't the only ones. And then so we'll look over in uh, another passage of Scripture. We'll take a look at uh, Mark's gospel. And in Mark's gospel, I'll tell you what, let's, for, for, for matters of time, We'll look at Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, I want to get through. Again, we're moving through a lot of text this morning. 
But in Matthew chapter 10, it's very familiar, sending the 12. And summoning, chapter 1, and summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. And then he lists the disciples, so does Matthew there, each one of them. And likewise, in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed the twelve, whom he named apostles. Now, disciples are those who are learners. Apostles are those who are messengers or tellers. And so there's a real sense here. Maybe you've never really understood this. I think sometimes in church we think Jesus picked the twelve and they just went with him. Sometimes we think they were with him the whole three and a half years. But there really is a progression to their calling. There's a conversion. There's a teaching. But then there comes a time made clear in several passages, including this one in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus went up into the mountain there and he prayed and he appointed 12 of them. 12 of them. And at that point, about 18 months into his earthly ministry, with about 18 months until his crucifixion, Jesus spends the majority of his time really developing an internship with these 12. Very diverse, very different. In some ways, you, as, as MacArthur said, very marginal men with, with limited ability, and he pours himself into them. And so, again, I, I want you to see the progression of calling and then a call to ministry and then a call to sending them out as apostles. And then after his death, burial, and resurrection, there's a fourth. There's a call to conversion, a call to ministry, or teaching, a call to apostleship. And then there's a fourth one, which comes after his resurrection, and that is really a call to martyrdom. And that's on the Sea of Galilee there, where Jesus is having breakfast with him after his resurrection. And and he talks about, uh, Peter says, what about John? And, and, and Jesus says, whatever he, he would have him do, it, it's up to him. But when you were young, you'll go where you want. But when you're old, you'll not. And, and basically, at that point, all of them, after the day of Pentecost, realize that their, their whole life is Jesus. And all of them, except for John, would give their life for Christ. Folks, they didn't start out that way the day they met Jesus, but that's the way they ended up. You understand? There was a progression. And the more time they spent with Jesus, the more they desired to be like him, the more they found him to be loving and caring, and the more they wanted to be where he was, and the more they wanted to be his messengers. And so it's exciting as I think about these men, the very normal life that they had, the way they, 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 they progressed from knowing him and recognizing him to eventually laying down their other life's work to following him, and even then, imperfectly, even at the point of his, his betrayal and his arrest, and they fled that night, and the first Sunday night of, after the resurrection, they were housed there in the upper room behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, but then the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, and on the day of Pentecost, they preached and 3,000 were saved. And then, as you know, from that point on, they did, as the book of Acts say, turn the world upside down. And each of them, except for John, were eventually killed for their faith. And this is what we're going to look at in the next few weeks. And we'll look at each one of these men individually. We'll look at their calling. We'll look at their ministry. We'll look at how they related to Jesus. We'll look at their personalities. And I think in many of them, you will find many things about yourself and your life that you can very much identify with. 
But here's a question this morning I want us to think about. Why 12? And why is 12 important? Even even Paul, who comes along much later, and we, we talked about Paul last week, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, he calls himself an apostle, but he's not. he says he's not one of the 12. And even after Judas committed suicide in the book, you know that, that after he did that, the scripture reveals that they, they selected one to replace Judas, another, so they would be 12. So what's the... What's the uniqueness? What's the importance? What's the significance of those original 12? Now, having talked about their call and, and their, then their, their, their conversion, their call, their ministry, and their apostleship, and then eventually their martyrdom, having talked about the diversity that they had in their backgrounds, having talked about the fact that they were normal men with great weaknesses and failings, having talked about all of that, in fact, that they were 12 of them that Jesus selected, and 12 was an important number for sure. Many times, when you look at pictures of the disciples, you see 12 old men with Jesus. Many times, when you look at the pictures of the disciples that are artists' renderings, or if you uh, grew up in a, in a church environment, when we were in Montreal, uh, there's a beautiful, beautiful cathedral there called... Uh, um, Notre Dame, and it is absolutely gorgeous. And at the front of the Notre Dame Cathedral are the 12 apostles. There they are, you know. Uh, there's huge, life, full-size statues of them there. And uh, they're all very old, and they look like very old men. And they look, they look very holy. They're obviously, in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, they're all saints, you know, all of that. And, and the reality is neither one of those things are true. First of all, they were not old men when Jesus called them. They were extremely young. You know, it's a story where they're concerned about paying the temple tax. Do you remember that? And again, time doesn't allow me to go back and, and read all these, but, but there was a story there in the New Testament where they were concerned about paying the temple tax. And, and Jesus said, well, let's go fishing and pull the fish out. And, and when they did, there was enough money to pay the temple tax for, for the two of them, for Jesus and I believe Peter. Well, you had to be 21 years old or older to pay the temple tax. So it's, it's altogether likely that maybe, maybe Peter was 21 and probably all the other disciples were maybe less than that, which would not have been unusual. So I want you to think of them not as 60-year-old men or 50-year-old men with white hair following Jesus around or even 40-year-old men. You know, Jesus is early 30s. They're probably in their 20s and some of them in their late teens. So I, I want you to see them as that age. And I don't want you to see them as something in a stained glass window or some sort of saint. They were just normal men. Many of them, as, as uh, we will see when we go through all of their lives and hear all of their stories and read accounts of them, they were men who didn't always measure up. As a matter of fact, after 18 months of Jesus investing his full life into them, and he asked them on that night in the garden to pray with him, even the inner circle, we'll talk about sort of how they're in three different groups, the disciples of four, four, and four. And that, that inner circle of four, he brings them to, to, to the garden with him, and he says, I want you to stay awake and pray with me. And they go to sleep. They can't even do that. And then one of his own betrays him. And then they all flee. And so it looks like, from the standpoint of, of a human standpoint, that this isn't working out, that these, this was not a good selection of these 12 by any means. I'm excited. 
go into that in the next week or two. But why 12? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why, is, why were there 12? And when Judas was uh, killed himself, why did they replace him, but then they didn't keep replacing? Did you ever think about that? That's it. They didn't, every time one of them died, they didn't replace them again. And even Paul doesn't consider himself, even though he's an apostle, he doesn't consider himself to be one of the 12. Well, the 12 is important. Like many things in Jesus' ministry, there's a, there's a, a reality of judgment with this. A judgment on Israel, a judgment on the Pharisees, a judgment on the, the religious group of the day. And there were 12 tribes, correct? And so there's, there's, a, there's a reality here where Jesus is going to use these 12, and, and we're going to see where that is. But before we go there, let's look to a very familiar passage of Scripture, one of many, in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus really denounces the hypocrisy of the religious people of his day. In Matthew 23, Jesus spoke to the crowd and to his disciples, and he says, the scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they teach. Jesus said, the scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. And then, if you have your Bibles open, in verse 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. And then verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and then when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. This is pretty hot, tough stuff here. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. Whatever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. Blind fools. I'd love to preach that text for you. Verse 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You pay a tenth of a mint a dill and come in, and yet you've neglected the important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. And then verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. And verse 29, woe to you, scribes and hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part in shedding the prophets' blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. And then if that's not enough, verse 33, snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? Well, that's pretty hard preaching to the Pharisees and those folks, but we're not done. Over in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, you know, Jesus has healed a man who's uh, on the Sabbath. They're discussing that's not right. So in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he is Beelzebub, talking about Jesus. He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So angry and so upset were the scribes and Pharisees that they didn't just call Jesus a false prophet because he called them out on all of their sin, all of their self-righteousness. 
and all of that, then now they actually say he's not just a, a false prophet, he's actually the devil himself. So you have the scribes and the Pharisees who've given their lifetime to studying God's word, to obeying God's law, to praying for the Messiah, and when the God that they worship actually comes and lives among them, they don't not only not recognize him, they call him the devil. Verse 23, or verse 28, Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven of all of their sins and blasphemies, whatever. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So here, the religious leaders of his day, those who ran the temple, those who wore the religious garb, those who said they spoke for God. Finally, Jesus, he lays it all out. I mean, over a period of, 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 of three years of teaching, he's constantly probing and pushing and, and correcting them. But finally, it gets to the point that he lays it all out. Again, I don't have time to go into this, but there's a, there's a place in Jesus' ministry where he basically begins to only teach in parables. And one of the reasons for that is that he realizes the more truth he teaches, the hotter hell's going to be for these scribes and Pharisees and others who hear the teaching and don't respond. So he begins to teach in, in parables so that those who don't have ears won't hear. So here in, in Matthew 23, he just lays it all out, one after another, just keeps pounding and pounding and pounding. And here in Mark 3 and other places that talk about the unpardonable sin, he basically says, when you call God the devil, and when you absolutely resist the, 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 the Son of God, there is no redemption for you. So the unpardonable sin is to reject the Savior. If you reject the Savior, you will find hell. It will be there for you. It's serious kinds of stuff. So here, and you remember Jesus talked about the temple and how he'll destroy it and raise it again in three days, and we could go on and on. So what's the significance of the 12? I'm glad you asked. It's good stuff. Jesus makes it clear. They're talking about, at one point, I mean, and we're going to find this out as we go through each of their lives, that they, they often are discussing who's the greatest, and in the kingdom, who's going to be the greatest, and who's going to have certain positions, and who's going to set in certain places, and who's going to be able to do certain things. And, and a lot of times you'll find them sort of um, more or less arguing amongst themselves about who is, who is the greatest, and who is going to actually uh, have all the, the... Remember, James and John's mother came, and she said that she wanted one of her sons to sit on the right hand and one of her sons to sit. She didn't care which one was which. And they're often fussing and fighting and, and arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus kind of surprises them. And he makes it clear that here on this earth, it's not about which one of them will be the greatest, but that at one day, that they will actually judge Israel. Now, clearly, he's talking here about in the millennium. He's not talking about right now. But at one point and one time, they will set in judgment against Israel. These 12, basically 
symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And they will judge them. And I, I think the, the, the absolute contrast between these religious leaders and all they knew about the law, these 12 ordinary men who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and empowered by our Lord. I think the contrast in those two things is striking to us. And so if you look even in the book of Revelation, I'll go clear back there, and we will see where Jesus talks about the reality of what's going to happen. In Revelation, well, let's look at Luke 22 first. Luke 22. This is a Sunday you should definitely bring your Bible. In Luke 22, the dispute over greatness, chapter 24, their big dispute arose them among who should be considered the greatest. I, I can't wait. I just, I, just hope, I just can't wait to dive into that between them, but it, we'll get there in a minute, but next week or week after. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them selves called benefactors. It's not to be like that among you. In other words, you're not going to rule like that. This is what he says. Listen, talking about these 12, listen, Luke 22. On the contrary, whoever is the greatest among you should become like the youngest, whoever leads like one serving. For who is greater than the one at the table who is the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. So basically he's talking about if you be the greatest, you'll serve. There's a whole sermon there. And usually that's how, how you preach that, or it's being preached. But listen to what he says in verse 28. You are those who stood by me in my trials, talking to these disciples. I bestow you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Look, look at verse 30. And you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So why are there 12 disciples, and why was one replaced after Judas committed suicide? Because Jesus made it clear that one of the reasons to pick the 12, one of the reasons to pick 12 who seem unprepared and untaught and uneducated, didn't wear the right clothes, didn't pray the right prayers, didn't say the right things, one of those reasons was to show that when they followed Christ and their heart was right and they were righteous in Christ, that they would one day, and he means it, it's really going to happen, in the millennium, when Jesus comes back, they will one day set in judgment over them. And that's even made clear, as I said, in the book of Revelation chapter 21, where John writes in verses 12, 13, and 14. So beautiful. Let me go back and read verse 9 because it's great. John says, Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls with the seven plagues came and spoke to me and said, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. By the way, that is Revelation 21, 9, if you want to read about the new Jerusalem. The city had a massive high wall, and there were 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's son were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb were on the foundation. <laughs> wow! That's pretty important. 
Peter, James, John, Thaddeus, Judas, Judas, I mean, Judas the last, all of these, these disciples that we're going to read about in the next few weeks, Jesus chose 12 as a sign of judgment on Israel and on the temple and on the Pharisees and on the scribes. He, cho- he chose that. And he makes it clear to them, when they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in some kind of earthly kingdom, he's saying, you have no idea what's going to happen. Because you have served with me, because you've suffered with me, because of how I've poured my life into you, one day, you, 12, are going to represent the judgment on a nation, on a people who who refused me. And one day in heaven, you're going to be at the foundation of all of that. That's an amazing, glorious sign. So you go from... Twelve fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors, ragtag, who, who, as we read their lives, we're going to find out that they, they, they oftentimes miss the mark over and over and over again to those who are going to rule with Christ and be in judgment on the religious leaders of Israel of their day. I bet you didn't know that before you got here, some of you this morning. That's why there were 12. That's, it's, it's a sign of judgment on those who resisted Jesus. And then, well, we're going to bring this thing in for a landing this morning. <laughs> it's found in 1 Corinthians. What's it mean for the disciples? What's it mean for Paul? What's it mean for you and me? Well, first of all, you and I need to know that you sit there and think, I, I, I don't have any training. I, I don't have any ability. I don't know much about anything. And you go, well, I can say, well, great. You'd fit in with these disciples just fine. You can say, you know, I don't always say the right things. I don't always, I sometimes can make people mad. Well, great. You'd fit in. You'd be with this crowd just fine. Where you wouldn't fit in would be with the scribes and Pharisees. You'd feel really inferior around them. But Jesus made it abundantly clear that they didn't know who I was anyway. They were trusting their own righteousness, and these disciples were not. So if you're here this morning and you understand your sinfulness, that's a great place to start. If you're here this morning and you think you're better than everybody else, well, you better decide what, who you are in these pictures. You're a lot more like the Pharisees than you are like the disciples. So if you're here this morning and you're broken and you feel weak, and Satan's dragging on you and telling you you can't do anything, yeah, you're just, you're just perfect for Jesus. It's just what he's looking for. Absolutely. And Paul makes it so clear in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Here we go. Are you ready? This describes the disciples. This describes you. This describes me. This is hope for us. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Paul gets it. He understands it. Part of the reason for these 12 humble fishermen and farmers and tax collectors and zealots was to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak to shame the strong. Verse 28, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, which is viewed as nothing, to bring to what is viewed as something. Why? So that no one can boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in order as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's why he chose this 12 ragdad group. No way were they ever going to think after the day of Pentecost, we're here because we knew something. (laughs) They're going to know we're only here because the power of Christ flows through us. We're only here because of the power of the Holy Spirit. They realized they fled the night Jesus was arrested. They realized they went to sleep the night he told them to stay up. They realized they spent way too much time as they were walking the hillsides of Galilee with Jesus, arguing about who's going to sit at his right side and who's going to have the more power. They realized they had failed him time after time after time. Peter realized he walked on the water, but then he looked at the water and he began to sink. Peter realized he boasted, I will never leave you. These people might leave you, but I will never leave you. And then he realized that awkward breakfast on the Sea of Galilee after Jesus was resurrected. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, do you love me, agape, with unconditional love? And Peter basically said, Lord, I am fond of you. And Jesus said, Peter, do you love me with agape love? And Peter said, basically, Lord, I'm fond of you. He used the word phileo, brotherly love. Third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. And that's, that's, a, that's a refrain from the Old Testament, from Samuel, where basically Peter is saying, you know I'm a sinner. You know I failed. I'm not going to pretend anymore to be something I'm not. And that's when Jesus said, now you can feed my sheep. When you're not trusting in yourself, when you realize I do know you and I still love you, now you can feed my sheep. And the scribes and Pharisees, they thought they knew everything, and they couldn't do it. And friend, it's when you're humble and you're broken and you realize, I can't do it. I am a failure. I depend on Jesus. As we spend the next few weeks together, we're going to see how every miracle, every parable had many facets, but one of its primary facets was to teach those disciples. And when one, of the, one of the biggest miracles was the feeding of the thousands, the feeding of the multitudes, right? And Jesus took the lunch, but, but this is so important. Don't miss this. Jesus told the disciples, have the people sit down. And Jesus provided the food, and the disciples passed it out. Yes, it's a story of a little boy sharing his lunch, but it's far more than that. It's a story so that decades later, those disciples would know, we don't generate the food Jesus does. We just serve it. We just pass it out. And so we're going to see over and over how these disciples grow from a broken group of men who are wanting something for themselves to a bold group of men who were willing to lay down their life for Jesus and how that God chooses to use the foolish things to confound the wise so that we can't boast in anything at all other than Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his redemption and his sanctification and not in ours. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, be sure to subscribe to our show so the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready whenever you are. And secondly, if Grace Family has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description and make a donation now. And we'll see you next time on the Grace Family Podcast.